Welcome to another inspirational teaching by Pastor Mike Foreman, Senior Pastor of the First Baptist Church of Level Plains. For more information about Pastor Mike and the church, please visit our website at www.fbclp.life. Let's join Pastor Mike now as he shares from God's Word. Let's get down to it. I want you to begin to look for the book of Romans, chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and I've entitled today's message, What's So Amazing About Grace? I don't know about you, but I like grace. Amen? Everybody likes grace. Listen, we, we want to give grace, right? We, or, or at least, let me back up. We, we want to receive grace, don't we? We're good about saying, man, just give me a break. Give me some grace. You know, the, the, the boss on the job may be a little tough on us sometimes, and we're like, just give me a little grace, you know? Um, you know, mom and dad, sometimes we give grace to our children. Our children are looking for grace from us. So grace is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. But you know, the reason why grace is so wonderful and so glorious is because of where we came from. Amen? I want you to think about this premise for a minute this morning. There's not a single human being on the planet that's ever walked the planet, that ever will walk the planet. Lord tarries in his coming. Except one, Jesus. He doesn't include this. this not, he's not in this group. Who does not have a bent towards sinfulness. See, the reality is men are not sinners just because they commit sin. No, we are sinners because our nature is sin. That is that we can't help ourselves. When somebody says, I can't help myself, sometimes that's legit. (laughs) Sometimes people cannot help themselves when it comes to sinning because we are depraved in our nature. You know, there's this fallacy that has been taught that, that says that man in his essence, in his nature, is good. That's not true. There is nothing good in us and in our nature. He's saying, I thought we were talking about grace. Well, I'm going to get there. As a matter of fact, there's another statement that I want to say this morning that, that is not a true statement. And that is that there are some people who believe that men are born with this hole in their heart with a bent towards God. And it's like a donut-shaped hole. And we want to, God's going to fill that void. And they have this, this pull, this desire to be looking for God. The only thing is they get a little misguided. And so what they do is they, they may find alcohol instead. Or they may find an illicit relationship. Or they may fill that void with other things in their life. But eventually, hopefully, they're going to fill that void with God. Can I just tell you that's not true either? That not a single person in this room was born with a bent or a a pull towards God. That may be new to some of y'all. You may be thinking, wow, I've never heard that before. But it's true. And what I want to do this morning is I sort of want to walk through. And I want to talk about that because here's what I want you to understand. When you leave this room today, here's what I want you to understand. Grace is amazing. I mean, it is. It's amazing. And so I want you to appreciate grace by understanding where you and I came from. So open your Bibles, Romans chapter 3. We're going to slip into verse 9. Verse 9. And I'm going to read down through verse 25. Listen to the words of God. Listen. This is God's word. This is what God says. What then, Paul says, verse 9. Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under 
sin. Now, I have to just tell you, when you go through this text, I want you to look at the little word all, none. It's used tons and tons of times. Listen to what he says. Verse 10. For it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So how many are righteous? How many people are born righteous? None, right. There is none who understands. How many people understand? None. Okay, you get the point, right? There is none who seeks after God. How many, is, how many seek after God? All right, what does none mean? Zero, right? All right, so, not, so I want you to just, just follow the line of thought. Verse 12, they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. How many do good? None. Verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is, on the, is under their lips. Those whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And they have, uh, excuse me, in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19, now we know. That whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified or made right in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, verse 21, but now, contrast, change, Difference, right? But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of Christ through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all sin and all fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. I want you to think about this morning what Paul is telling us about what is so amazing about grace. Now, in order to understand how amazing grace is, we really have to understand how far we have come. In order to understand how wonderful grace is, we have to sort of understand the depravity in which we were born in and which we have come out of because it's important. Because listen, if you don't appreciate, I can remember, let me just back up and say this way. I can remember when I got old enough to drive. How many of y'all remember those days? That's been a long time for some of y'all, right? But I remember when I was able to, able to drive and I actually, I actually was put off an extra year. I wasn't allowed to drive for an extra year at my house because, well, I got arrested when I was 16 for driving without a license. I got arrested on my parents' anniversary of all times to get arrested. And they didn't have cell phones back in those days. So my parents finally got home from a day at the beach and had to come get me like at 6 o'clock at night. They had to drive an hour and a half back, Dave, to come get me. You wouldn't have been a happy dad either, would you? Yeah, no. So my dad picks me up and the cop says, your dad's here. I'm like, can I just stay overnight? You know, it's like, it'd be easier to stay here. So, so my parents made it where I couldn't get my license an extra year. And in New Jersey, you couldn't drive till you were 17. So I had to be 18 before I get my license. But I can remember coming up to get my license. I wanted my own car because I was riding a moped around. And by the way, it's not as funny as it seems because I was a lot skinnier. All right. So get that out of your head. I know what you're thinking. That on a moped. Oh, my word. 
you know, but no, it was a lot thinner. And so I can remember I wanted my first car and I didn't have enough money. And I said, dad, just help me with the money. He said, nope, I'm not going to do it. If you buy it yourself, you'll what? You'll appreciate it more. Okay. So the reality was I bought my own car. It was, I'll never forget it. This bright orange Ford Fiesta is what I bought. And, the, and I had, yeah, yeah. Four speed. It's better than a moped. Amen, brother. Let me tell you. Amen. It had four, it had four seats. Amen. Amen. I could take a girl on a date in that thing. Amen. I could on the moped. But anyway, and it was even worse. I'll give you, it was even worse. Back then they had carburetors in cars. The carburetor backfired. I didn't know it. I had parked the car. It backfired and caught on fire. Now I'm driving a, a, remember Marina? I'm driving a bright orange car with a big black circle on the hood. Amen. (laughs) Hey, we all got to start somewhere, right? It's the same thing with our grace. See, if we don't look at where we've come from and appreciate what God has done for us in our life, then sometimes we treat grace, we treat grace like we would if our parents bought our car and we could care less. Think about that. Amen? So when we begin to think about grace this morning and we begin to think about our depravity, notice how Paul sort of explains to us, first of all, in verse 9. When Paul, in verse 9, here's what he says. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, he says. For we have previously charged, and by the way, just if you look back at the beginning of chapter 1, following the line of thinking of Paul all the way through where he is talking now, he's talking about those previous thoughts that he's already given us in chapter 1. And he's saying in the beginning of chapter 1 and 2 that, listen, in in chapter 3, that Jews and Gentiles are alike in that we are all sinful. That is, it doesn't matter what kind of religious advantage you think you have, you really don't have any. And then when he, when he talks about in verse 9, he says, are we. Notice Paul is encompassing himself. And Paul is saying in that verse, are we. That is, are we who are Christians? Are we who are believers? Are we better than everybody else because we're Christians? No, the reality is we are only graced to be Christians. Amen? That is that you and I are not Christians by the virtue of the fact that we were good people. See, sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we portray this idea that we're so good, that we're so righteous and so holy, and we forget that we too were in depravity, that we too were in sin, that we too were without God, that we didn't seek him and we weren't looking for him. We forget that. And so Paul has to remind us, he said, look, we're all the same. And he says, we've charged both Jews and Gentiles. They're all under sin. That's all of us. Well, how do we know this to be the facts? How do we know this to be the truth? What were we like before we came to know Jesus? What are people who don't know Jesus like? Well, I want to just define it this way in three ways. First of all, I want us to begin to look at man's disposition. What is man like in his disposition, his character, we could say? And then I want to talk about what is man's dialogue? What does he say? How do we know people are lost? And then lastly, we're going to look at his demeanor. And then his demise. So just hang in there with me, okay? So first of all, let's look at his disposition. What are men like? Verses 10 through 12. Here it is. Here's the character of men. As it is written, and he quotes several Old Testament passages. We don't have time to flip back and back today, so you can look at them at another time. But notice what he says. There is none righteous, no, not one. Can I just tell you that no person was born already righteous? 
That word righteous means to be right with God. That means that you have a right standing with a holy God. Tim, nobody had a right standing with a holy God. Nobody did. Amen? That puts us all in the same boat. Hallelujah. Not a single person in this room was born and said, well, man, me and God, we're just tight. We got this great relationship. No, that's not how it is. We were all born in this depravity by which we all would have to say, I was not right with God. I did not have a right standing with God. What I deserved when I was born was hell. That's what I deserve. But God in his grace, we'll come to that in a minute. So there's none who's righteous. But notice verse 11. There is none who understands. I want you to understand that there is no one who understood, first of all, how are you right with God? You know, men have been asking that question for a long time. Job asked that question. How can a man be right with a holy God? How is it that man can be right with God? We don't understand that. Listen, we don't understand. Listen, lost men not only do not understand about how to have a relationship with God, but listen, they don't understand what is coming as a result of not having a relationship with God. They don't understand the, the gravity of heaven and hell. They don't understand that. Listen, Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 2.14, what, that, that the, the natural man doesn't understand the spiritual things. And so when we're talking to lost people, and they, they're like, well, I don't quite understand. We shouldn't be all freaked out by that. We say, well, okay, well, let me try to help spiritually. Let me just appraise this for you, help you to understand the word of God. Because they don't understand that. And so it says, none understands. We'll look back at the text. He says, not only does none understand, verse 11, he said, there's none who seeks after God. Now, that's so crucial. That's so important. You were not born with a natural tendency towards God. Listen, let me tell you something. If you were, if you were, we'd have a whole lot more Christians in the world. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, somewhere in the Bible, at least twice, God says, if you seek me with your whole heart, you'll what? So if man has a natural bent to seek God, and he doesn't find him for some reason, then what's the problem? Is God a liar? No, God's not a liar. So man does not have a natural tendency to seek after God, because if he did, he would find him. So it says here, no, nobody, not a single person born in this world seeks after God. Amen? That's why I'm glad God takes the initiative. I'll say more about that in a few minutes. God takes the initiative because I'm not going to seek after God. That's not what men do. That's not what women do who are born into a world in a depraved nature, in sin, separated from God. That's not what they do. And then he says this in verse 12. They have all turned aside. Well, you remember that old great hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Can you imagine how tough that is for a Christian? But think about if you're not even a believer, you're already turning aside. Why? Because you can't help it. That's your nature. We're talking now about the nature. We're talking about now about this disposition of a person. This is what they are. They cannot help but not see God. They cannot help but turn aside. And then in verse 12, they have become unprofitable. Useless is the word there. We're talking about in a spiritual sense. There is nothing useful. We're not now trying to demean life. We're not trying to demean humanity. What we're trying to say is in a spiritual realm, in a spiritual sense, when it comes to a right relationship with God, there is no way that any of us were useful. Why? Because we couldn't find our way to God. 
And he goes on in the text, and notice what he says right after that. He said, there is none who does good, no, not one. And here's what we need to understand about that. Does that mean human beings are incapable of doing something good? Oh, no, they're incapable of doing good. We see lost people do all kinds of great things. We see people who don't know the Lord give millions of dollars away to charity. We, we see people who don't know the Lord go in the Peace Corps and serve around the world. We see people doing good things all the time. But here he's talking about there's none who does good in the, in the eyes of God. Listen, all of our works, the Bible says, are as filthy rags before God. That is, what. here's the problem. The problem with man is we think we are innately good, and so therefore what we try to do is have our relationship with God on our innate goodness. And the reality is we're not innately good. All right? We're not. And as a matter of fact, I want you to hold on a minute because a lot of people ask, well, preacher, tell me then, if God's so good, why is there all this suffering in the world? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to answer that question this morning in this text. We're going to see why there's all this in the world. So first of all, the disposition of man is he doesn't seek after God. He's lost. In his whole character, in who he is, he's outside of a relationship with God. And then I want you to look, second of all, at man's dialogue. What does man say? We find that in verses 13 and 14. He says, their throat is an open tomb. He said, with their tongues, they have practiced deceit. Listen, they are decaying in their speech. That is, they don't say anything that's profitable. They don't say anything that's good. It's decaying. Turn on the news. Listen to what people are saying about each other. Put on C-SPAN and listen to our own governmental leaders sitting and talking and how they talk about one another. How to degrade and bring down one another. Listen to gossip in the church and you'll begin to understand how people begin to degrade and bring each other down. Let me tell you, that's not of, that's not of Christ. That's a, that's, a, that's a mark of a lost man. That's a mark of a lost person. That's the old flesh coming back. That's the old man trying to whittle his way through your life. Because he says here, it's destructive. He says, notice in the text, he said they practice deceit. So it's deceitful. It's not only that, what did I say? Oh, decaying, it's dishonest, it's deadly. Notice he says in verse 13, uh, the end of that, the poison of asp is under their lips. You know, the fangs of a, of a snake stay hidden until he bites. But then the bite is what? It's fatal. It's fatal. And so their words are poisonous, deadly speech. But then there's what I would call disgusting speech. Look at the end of verse, uh, look at verse 14. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That's all that seems to come. That's, that's, the, that's the nature that we're bent towards. So we see it in the character of a person, but then we begin to see it in the talk of a person. How do they present themselves through their speech? And it begins to filter its way through, and you begin to see how lost a man is by the things that he says. But then you see it more and more clearly through what he does. And I call this the demeanor. So what does he do? What does what a man do that makes them appear and to show us who they really are? Well, notice in verse 15, first of all, murder. He said, their feet are swift to shed blood. Boy, I tell you, you say, oh, I don't, I don't see that. I wasn't a murderer. No, but Jesus said that if you, in your words, if your words, if you curse your brother with your words, you're a murderer in your heart, Right? We're reminded that when Cain killed Abel, where did it begin? It didn't begin with the, the knife he plunged into his brother or the stone he killed him with. It began in his heart. And so he says to us, and he reminds us that they are swift to shed blood. We got thousands of babies being killed every year. People are, don't have a problem with it. 
I don't know how they don't have a problem with it. Well, I do, actually, because they're lost. They don't know the Lord. Notice verse 16. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Now listen, destruction is what they do. Misery is a result. So how is it that we look at God and say, God, if you really exist, why are there children starving? Why are there people dying? When we ought to be looking at ourselves in the mirror and going, you know what? It's by our own destruction that we cause the misery that's going on in the world. There's enough money, enough food to take care of the world population. But you know what? Men in our hearts are not converted and changed. We're we're not different. And because of that, we cause destruction and misery. Wars happen. Why? Because there's pride and arrogance. And people are puffed up and they want to dominate other people. And so wars and things begin to happen in the world. We got to quit pointing the finger at God. Even some Christians say, well, you know, I'm struggling in my faith because where's God when all this bad stuff is happening? Let me tell you something. This bad stuff is happening because that's the world we live in. And the good thing about grace... I'll crack the window shade a little bit. Heaven's not like that. Amen. Heaven's not like that. If you're living for this world, my friend, you'll be sorely disappointed. You'll be sorely disappointed. And he goes on in the text. Notice he says in verse 17, he says, in the way of peace they have not known. Why is there not any peace in the world? All those women that get up on those pageants and say, you know, world peace, world peace, world peace. Everybody wants world peace. Can I just tell you? World peace is not going to come because men are lost. Men are depraved. And what we need is the Prince of Peace. We need Jesus Christ because only then when he comes and rules with an iron scepter will there be peace upon the earth. And lastly, he says, the problem is that there's no fear of God before their eyes. Why do men do what they do? Because listen, they have no fear of God. Why? They don't even know him. They don't even know him. See, if men were born with an innate bent towards God, seeking after God, they would at least have some kind of inclination. You know what? If I do certain things, God's going to strike me dead. (laughs) But they don't. Why? Because they don't look to God. They're not seeking God. So therefore, if there is no God, listen, if there is no God, there's no rules to live by. There's no one governing. And therefore, there's no one governing. I am the God of my own world. I can do what I want. I feel comfortable about it. So that's why people will traffic young little girls at the age of 11 and 10 and 12 years of age. I do know how to count right, but I just, you know, just throwing some numbers out there to you. But they will traffic little girls. And why will they do that Not and be able to sleep at night with themselves? Because they have no fear of God in their heart. That's why we see what we're seeing in this world, friends. Let's not blame God. It's not God's fault. It's not God's fault. It's man's fault. Man's doing this. And so we begin to see the tragedy. And as a result of that, notice in verses 19 and 20, there is man's demise. That is man, because of the way he is, because he is innately not seeking God and innately by nature he is sin. The Bible says in verse 19, first of all, that you and I will be accountable. Now, he says in verse 19, now, He said, we know that whoever, or excuse me, whatever, that whatever, excuse me, the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be guilty before God. Two things he's saying there. Listen to what he says. First of all, the law is there to silence people. That is, that the law 
When people are saying, you know what, there's this law, and God gave the law, the Old Testament law. When God gave that law, it was never intended to save anybody. Please understand that. God never gave the law to save. God gave the law as a tutor. He gave the law as a teacher. He gave the law to tell us, hey, what does it look like to be in a relationship with God? What does it look like to be in a relationship with other people? And he begins talking about relationships. Remember that one relationship? You know, don't covet your neighbor's wife, right? Well, why? Because you've got a wife of your own. That's your sacred relationship that you have. You're not to be coveting somebody else's wife, amen? You ought to be in this relationship with yourself. That's how you live in relationship with other people. And what happens is people don't do that. People live outside these relationships. People don't, don't honor God like they should. And so what happens, the law silences them. When you stand before God one day, you cannot say to God, well, God, I didn't know. God's going to say, sorry, the law was written, and there's no excuse so the law's going to sign. All these people that say, well, when I get before God, I'm just going to tell him. You're not going to say a word. You're going to be silenced. If you don't believe that, go and look over Revelations. Begin to look at Revelation chapter 20 and see what it says. They're going to be silenced. But not only that, the law's the tutor. The law's say, hey, look, this is wrong. This is wrong. And it begins to build in us this thing saying, you know what, there are some things that are wrong. Man, all of our law, isn't it interesting how our laws are based on God's word, isn't it, isn't it incredible? Why? Because saved men down the line realize that we have this law given to us not to make us saved, but to help govern us as people because left to ourselves, we're lost in depravity and we'll do whatever we want to do. And so he says to us in verse 20, as he wraps it up, he says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in the sight of God for the law is of the knowledge of sin. So therefore, what he's saying to us is there's no way that a person can be saved by the law, nor any works of any kind of law. Substitute law there for whatever you want to substitute it. Men are trying all kinds of things to be right with God, right? Or to make themselves feel good about themselves. Cheryl McLean stands on a beach and says, I am God. Well, you can claim all day you're God. doesn't make you God. Amen? So people are trying all day long to be right with God. But here's the reality. In your depravity, you can't be. So what's so amazing about grace? It's like Paul opens the window. In verse 21, notice the transition. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it beautiful? How he opens the window so that we can peer in to see what grace is. He opens the window and notice what he says in verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God apart from the law has been revealed. Paul says, listen, if you want to know what God's righteousness is like, it's been revealed. It's been given. If you want to know how to be right with God, God is not leaving you in the dark. As a matter of fact, God openly displayed it on a cross on a hill. The righteousness of God has been revealed through Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Before everybody. And he says to him, now the righteousness of God is apart from the law has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. He's saying, hey guys, it has not changed. You're still saved by grace through faith. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. That's the way it is today. Nothing's changed. Don't try to be right by keeping some kind of legalistic code or religion. You cannot be saved by religion. I don't care what religion you're claiming in this room today, you're not going to be saved by it. Amen? I'm not going to heaven because I'm a Southern Baptist. Amen? That is not the case. But now the righteousness of God, he said, verse 21, apart from the law has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Here it is, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God. What does God's standard require? It's been revealed to us in the word of God. He says, but the righteousness standard of God is right here. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
How is a man changed? How is a man converted? Through faith in Jesus Christ. How does he get there? God reveals himself. What's happened here? Paul makes this transition from we're in total depravity. We're not seeking God. We're not good. He, makes, he, he gives us, paints this bad picture of us. But then he says, but God is revealed. God is drawing. God is letting us know, hey, if you want to be right with me, it's through my son, Jesus Christ, and my faith in him. Amen. God points to the cross. And Paul does a great job here explaining the work of Jesus on the cross. It's by faith. And by the way, faith is not mere intellectual assent. Not saying like, hey, you know, I believe George Washington was the first president of the United States. I don't know if he was or wasn't. That's what the history books tell us. But I didn't live. I didn't see him. I didn't talk to him. I'm just taking it for granted that he is. That's what I was told all those years ago. But the reality is it's not that kind of a sin because even the devils know all about Jesus. Even at times when Jesus was present, they began to say, you're the son of God. I know who you are. You're the son of God. And Jesus said, hey, shut up. It's not your time to talk. I'm not going to let you talk right now. So it's not just mere intellectual assent. Listen, when we talk about faith, what we're talking about is the word surrender. When I talk about faith, I talk about the word lordship. That is that I give Jesus my whole life. I give him my intellect. I give him my emotions. I give him my will, and I live for Jesus. Amen? He has everything. I surrender as my Lord. Jesus, you own everything. I own nothing. You are Lord over my life. And Paul goes on to say, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Who are going to believe? Some are, some aren't. But no one's going to believe unless God begins to do a work in their heart. And God has begun to do that through the cross of Calvary. God has begun to draw people. God has begun to reveal himself. And as he reveals himself, men are either going to receive or they're going to reject. And so the problem is not that men are born with a hole in their heart looking for God. No, the reality is that we are born without a bent towards God. But God in his grace came looking for us. You've heard me share my testimony, but I'll do, do it again for some of you who do not know. When I was a young boy growing up in New Jersey, there was a lady who lived a few houses up from me, three houses up from us, who had a little Sunday school in the basement of her house. And I didn't go to church anywhere. I didn't know anything about Jesus. But in the basement of that little house, of Miss Allen's house, in that basement there, she began to tell me, God so loved the world. That was God drawing me. Amen? That was God saying, Mike, you're to pray, but I want to give you grace. And God began to reveal himself to me, even as a little boy, in a house of a neighbor, telling me about the good news of the gospel. I'm telling you, that's what God does. Amen? God in his grace said, you know what? I know you're depraved. I know you won't look for me. I know you can't find me, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come looking for you. That's tremendous, let me tell you. That's incredible. That's incredible. And he goes on and he says to us, he said, for all have sinned and fall short, verse 23, we quote it all the time. He says in verse 24 though, he says, how did this happen? How is it that we're right with God? How is it that God comes and looks for us? He says, here it is, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace. Justified means to be made right. What does God do? He makes me right by the work of his son, Jesus Christ. 
It is all of great. There, there's, there's the wonderfulness about great. See, I was depraved. I deserve hell. I deserve separation. I wasn't even looking for God, but he came looking for me. And not only did he come looking for me, but listen, he sent his son to die for me on the cross in order that his son's blood would be the propitiation, he says in a minute, the payment for my sin. That is to appease a righteous God. Why? Because it was God who was offended. In the Garden of Eden, when the men sinned, when, when Adam sinned in the garden, who was the one offended? It wasn't Adam. It was God who was offended. God said, do not eat of this tree. And he did anyway, right? It was God who was offended. God could have said, you know what? I'm going to cast you into hell. You deserve it. And he he did. But what did God do? God said, those fig leaves ain't going to cover you. Let me kill an animal. And he killed an animal and he covered them with skin. And And he, all since then, Ever since the euangelio in verse 15 of chapter 3 of Genesis, God has been saying, I'm going to send my son into the world because I'm seeking to save you. And Jesus comes on scene, he says, and the job of me is to what? Seek and save the lost. Why? Because they're not seeking him. That's grace. God appeased himself through the death of his son on the cross of Calvary. We don't quite understand all that, but I tell you, it's true. It's exactly what he's saying here in the text. All of sin comes short, but God justified us freely through the grace, through the redemption, that is the buyback from his son. Verse 25, whom God has set forth as a propitiation of his blood through faith. That word propitiation was used in the Old Testament context. I want you to think about it this way, in the Old Testament context, that, that once a year, the day of atonement, the high priest would go into the temple and he would go into that place called the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. He'd go there once a year and he would take the blood and he would take that blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of God. Let me tell you, it's what Jesus did for you. Jesus took his blood and he took it to the throne of God and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat of God and God forgave you in Christ Jesus, amen? And what is God looking for today? How are we to be right with God? Listen, quit trying a religion. Quit trying to be good. Quit trying to give money. Quit trying this and quit trying that. And realize that you are depraved. You're outside a relationship with God. Except for faith by grace in Jesus Christ. Who paid the price and the penalty of your sin on the cross of Calvary. To do two things. To make you righteous with God. And to appease God for your sin. That's what he did for you. What's so amazing about grace? God didn't leave you on your own. Let's pray. Thank you for listening today. And remember, you can find more information about Pastor Mike and the church at our website, www.fbclp.life.